Comic Scene, the podcast, episode one. I'd like to welcome the managing editor of Comic Scene, Tony Foster, to the first episode of Comic Scene, the podcast. Hi, Tony. Hi. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Very good, thanks. Um, I'd like to chat a little bit about uh, your background and what your inspiration was for Comic Scene, the magazine. Um, I suppose like many people, I in the UK, I read comics as a kid. Yeah. Um, I was a particular fan of Fleetway and IPC magazines. Um, I used to get a pound from a grand every Saturday and head down to the newsagents and buy about 10 copies of Wizard and Chips and <laughs> Buster and and various comics like that. Yeah. And I suppose when I was around about 10 years old, the um, DC Comics started to appear on the newsstands where I went as well. Um, I suppose Superman would have been celebrating his 40th anniversary then. And um, I started to buy copies of that there, although there was a bit of a debate because they were 15 pence each and Wizard and Chips was 7 pence. So I wasn't <laughs> quite sure in terms of the economics if I was getting value for money or not. Um, and that's how my interest in comics started. And obviously I just kept following that on um, into the sort of 80s um, when various publications started to come out like Watchmen and um, Camelot 3000, uh, The Dark Knight, all those kind of comics that people are still reading today. Uh, but my, my interest in comics extended beyond reading them. Um, I started to dabble in self-publishing um, and wanting to um, promote writers and artists uh, through that publication and I produced a strip design called Atomic mm -hmm. in the in the sort of late 80s early 90s um, so it was letraset and photocopying <laughs> and and walking around shops trying to get them to sell it um, and we had a few creators in there that, that people might be aware of there was there was Graham Manley, who I'd been to a comic workshop with. He was uh, an artist on Near Myths yep. and uh, at a comic workshop in Stirling, which is where I lived. And at that comic workshop, he brought people like uh, Grant Morrison and Tony O'Donnell to speak to us. And this was before they, they'd made it big. And um, and then we, so we started to do the uh, Atomic and it lasted for about 13 issues. Um, and we uh, had some creators in there who people might know now, like Simon Fraser, who does Nikolai Dante, Gary Marshall, who went on to do some stuff, Missionary Man and Roy of the Rovers, um, and Johnny Rasmus, who went on to do uh, Accident Man in Toxic. Um, so I... I did all those publications and then uh, I ended up getting a, a job in student unions and the whole thing kind of stopped really. Mm -hmm. uh, I did do some subsequent student handbooks with Simon Fraser. We did two for Paisley Uni. Mm -hmm. 
uh, rather than a student handbook. It was a it was a it was a handbook in comic form. Right. Um, but that was the kind of last publications that I did relating to to comics, um, and it was only recently that I went to the Frank Whiteley exhibition yeah. in Kelvin Grove in Glasgow. And while I was there, I was kind of reading the, the panels and I, and I kind of realized that he was around at the same time as I was, I was printing the publication in places like Clydeside Press in, in Glasgow. And uh, our paths must have crossed. And, um, and it just kind of reminded me of Atomic and obviously in a, in a kind of midlife crisis way, I went back in and, and, and dug them out uh, 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 and, and, and started to sort of look into comics again. Right. And that started me on the road to producing comic scene. It's a fantastic exhibition, uh, I thought, uh, the Kelvin Grove. I thought they displayed the work in uh, a really interesting and fresh way. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, also, uh, interestingly enough, uh, when I was uh, at school, I went to one of Graham Manley's uh, comics <laughs> workshops, um, which was a bit of an inspiration for me uh years later when i came uh to teach comics was to create an anthology much like we created in in one of graham's uh, uh workshops back in the day yeah. mm-hmm. so that's really interesting um yeah. so uh if you go back to uh to the genesis of uh comic scene um mm-hmm. how did you set about creating the initial run of uh, magazines um well, there is a bit of a story to this as well. Um, I, as I said, I went back to look at the old issues of Atomic, and you know, I kind of went, well, everybody's forgotten about this, but I googled it anyway, and I found uh, an article by Chris Murray from Dundee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book about British superheroes, and he'd referred to a character that I, I'd created with a couple of people who were involved with. Atomic called Captain Scotland, and I just thought, actually, this is quite quite fun. And it was, you know, over 20, 25 years ago. Maybe I'll just do a, a short story um, on on Captain Scotland, um, just for fun, really, more yeah. than anything else, um, because he disappeared 25 years ago. And wouldn't it be great to have a sort of Back to the Future style story where he comes back to Scotland and. And it's all changed from when he was he was 21 years old in the late 80s. Um, and so I I started to write this story, and I thought, well, no one's actually going to read this story. Um, maybe I'll I'll just start doing a sort of comics blog, um, and then I'll mention it that it's is about to to come online, and 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 perhaps you'd like to read it. And I kind of hooked up with a few artists. Um, um, who shown an interest in doing some of the the artwork for the short story, um, and then it was about to be released. It was released in um, for St Andrew's Day in in two thousand and seventeen. Okay, and I wrote a a media release about it and just sent it to all the the newspapers like you know the Scotsman and the Herald and and all all, all those kind of papers in Scotland and they all picked it up and ran with the story um, uh, that this character was coming back um, I think even STV did a little piece on on their nighttime news story and it just made me realize that there was 
there was an interest in, in comics and, and uh, that was wider than 25 years ago uh, in in the pop, in the population mm-hmm. um, of, of uh, in the general population. Um, if if newspapers like these were interested in writing a story about a very minor character who had a limited distribution uh, 25 years ago, and um, and I so I started to uh, think, well, this is really interesting. You know, comics now are so well known that they're you know there, there's movies about comic characters nearly every single week. You look at every magazine. That's coming about cinema, and it's all—it seems to be always a superhero that's on the front of it. Um, there was all these uh, new comics being revisited by Rebellion and, and DC Thompson um, that that they were, they were about to they were coming out or about to come out, and there just didn't seem to be a magazine to tell you about it, which seemed quite odd that there wasn't a magazine, a dedicated magazine to a print form. Yeah. There was lots of blogs, uh, which are very, very good and very interesting, but I kind of started to read them and think, well, these are written by fans for fans. They're not necessarily written by uh, for people who perhaps just looked at comics 25 years ago, 30 years ago, which, you know, the casual readers, of which there were many, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 250,000 reading 2000 AD or, or Tammy or, or Wizard and Chips or Roy of the Rovers or whatever. And all the people who obviously were interested in, in American comics as well. Uh, you you had to have some kind of knowledge uh, about comics and I just wanted to produce something that perhaps was an introduction to comics for those people but also would be of interest to fans and also maybe make them consider looking at comics that they didn't actually think about before. Um, so I kind of started to dabble with that idea. And then uh, I thought, well, I'll just go for it. I'll, I'll create a subscription only magazine mm-hmm. and, and we'll see what kind of response we could get to that. And, um, and the initial response was quite positive. Um, and people were interested in in subscribing to it for more than just one issue, for sort of six issues. Um, and so that helped when it came to funding it. So that's kind of how it started. Okay. And uh, getting it to, to market, uh, you, you, you say there you were aiming for a more mainstream audience I suppose so how did you set about getting into places like WH Smith's and getting it into to comic shops mm-hmm. well I, I spoke to um, initially I spoke I met with a couple of people uh, or I spoke to a couple of people who, who seemed to be doing some great things on, on with, with comics still one was John Freeman from Down the Tubes and I just asked his, his opinion and then I also met with John McShane mm-hmm who used to run AKA Books and Comics um, in Glasgow and had been, I think he was the, he was, he, I went to a, an event at uh, the book festival in Edinburgh. I think it was Grant Morrison. I think um, uh, John introduced it. So I knew he was still in and around and interested in, in comics. 
And uh, I just went and asked their advice, and um, it was John McShane who said to me, um, look, we've got um, this Edinburgh Comic Con coming up. Why don't you launch it there and, and, and bring some magazines with it? Which was fine, but it was that meant that we lost four weeks editorial with the first publication to get it there on time, which we managed to do. And it was at that at that event that somebody from Forbidden Planet um, in Edinburgh um, saw the publication, mm-hmm. and they said that they would be interested in stocking it. And then um, there was the John. Freeman uh, showed it to the people down south at, 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 at Titan and uh, Forbidden Planet there, and they showed an interest. And then another of, number of comic shops showed an interest, which was which, which was a surprise to me, just based on 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 the first publication. And then I got a call from um, Diamond, who'd seen a tweet from OK Comics about the magazine, and then said they'd be interested in in stocking it. And, and offering it to, to comic shop through previews. And we've been getting some really, really good feedback from people as well who had seen copies of the magazine, uh, either as PDF or as print at the, at the Comic Con. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there is something here. I'll just send a speculative email to uh, a distributor who was distributing magazines that I thought that comic scene could sit beside in WH Smith. Mm-hmm. And... Within two weeks of me sending that email, they'd met, I think, with Market Force and said, yes, WH Smith and McCall's are interested in stocking your magazine. Um, and that was great, but there is a cost to that. And that was supported by uh, GetMyComics.com in a sort of advertising deal with them for some of the issues who've really helped and sponsored the magazine, along with people like Comic House and and, and Dundee as well, who, who advertised in earlier I- I- issues and and uh, people like that. So that's how we got it into market and the the oh, into W H Smith and the current issue, which is the pilot issue, um, was probably the kind of last um, magazine of volume one, if you like, that we planned. And the next issue is kind of the first issue on newsstand um, available to everybody, uh, yeah. comic fans and people who perhaps used to pick up many years ago. And it's probably true that when I had that initial conversation with John McShane, we, we said, you know, how many, how many dedicated comic fans are left in the UK and it, uh, from when it was at its height. And then we kind of, did a percentage of how many people would be interested in the magazine and it wouldn't have been sustain, sustainable with just comic fans and the, the sort of comic industry. It needed to break out of that a little bit um, to be able to, to continue or have a chance of continuing. Um, so that's how we got to market. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that first issue. What, what's, in, what's featured in that first issue? In the, in the issue that's about to come out? Yes, um, yeah. We have a, a, a number of articles in there. John, John Freeman has been doing a, a regular article for us, um, and he um, 
so it deciphers the 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 um the, the question about who owns what um within that and, and starts that that journey uh we have um uh, a look at uh, sports comics football comics in particular which is on the back of the sort of roy of the rovers uh, relaunch and within that we look at uh, roy of the rovers billy's boots um um and that will continue into the next issue as well uh, with a look at Glory Glory um, from the pages of Roy the Rovers Monthly. And within that one as well, in, in the first issue, Barry Tomlinson, the, the, the former editor of Roy the Rovers, talks about classic Roy the Rovers, which I, with a, which I think Rebellion are planning to do things with in the future, which is, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got two new series starting in that. We've got um, a, a look at 80 Years of the Batman, so it starts with the 1930s in the next issue and will continue each issue throughout the rest of the year. We've got the first part of a three-part look at Marvel UK, uh, um, the first 10 years of Marvel UK. Uh, we'd look at a few new comics like Oliver, which is kind of like a 21st century interpretation of the Dickens novel. Um, and... We also touch on uh, movies and, 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 and TV, which is with uh, in association with Tripwire magazine, which looks at the forthcoming movies coming up over the next year, like Shazam and, and, and Captain Marvel. And one of the things that was really important to us was to be able to have a section on um, small press and indie press, um, because that's our background, and yeah. we just wanted to see to have the same exposure that that we used to enjoy through things such as enemy when it was when 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 indie publishing was was really in its kind of infancy i suppose and um so we've got a, a section um in the magazine as well every month that covers that and of course pat mills writes for us and this month he, he covers martial law and there's a feature on that as well great uh, and we also look back at some of the old creators, like uh, Mike Weston is in there, and that's an article by Ian Wheeler, who usually does our Doctor Who coverage. And then there's uh, also, um, obviously, there was the sad news about Ron Smith, and um, we've, we remember Ron in, in the magazine as well. So that's what's coming in the next issue. <laughs> Okay, that's a that sounds like a fantastic lineup. Um, and what are your uh, plans for the future beyond uh, the the first few issues? What else do you have planned? Where where do you see this going potentially? Well, in terms of um, distribution, the next step is to look at supermarkets, uh, and that's that's already in in play. Um, we are also looking at some columnists uh, to sort of broaden the reach of, of what we're doing. Um, some of them are well-known people. Um, some of them are um, very specialist in, 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 in what they cover, but we feel it's quite important to, to try and get a, 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 a capture the whole of the, the comic industry in the, in the UK. Sure. We've got um, a, a regular feature coming up, which is about um, comic cons. 
which is obviously a big a big player in, in, in comics now. Um, and we also have a regular price guide looking at comics and, and investing in comics and, and, and what's hot and what's not kind of idea. So there's a lot of different things in there um, that uh, we can cover. And the beauty of it is there's so much rich history of, of, of comics that um, we hope to cover a lot of it uh, over the over many years. Um, but I suppose it really is just trying to sustain the magazine and encouraging as many people to, to buy it, to support that and to and to be able to get that message about comics out to a kind of broader and wider audience um, uh, so that we can help we can help people and direct people to to some of these titles that perhaps they were unaware of and then that's kind of what we're trying to do great and uh, as part of that um uh, we, we're going to be a part of that as well uh, we're mm-hmm. going to be doing this regular podcast uh, every yeah. couple of weeks and uh, we are we're really excited in dundee to be to be a part of this going forward so uh thanks very much for your time tony and um what we'll do is we'll we'll connect uh in the weeks to come and, and hopefully get you back on to talk about any future plans and any future issues that are coming up that would be great fantastic thank you very much and Thanks. thank you to Dundee as well for agreeing to do the podcast. I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Comic C. Classic and Contemporary Review. And with me today I have three very special guests. They are... I'm Chris Murray. Uh, I'm Professor of Comic Studies at the University of Dundee and an avid reader of comic scene. I am Damon Head. I'm the coordinator of Dundee Comics Creative Space, which I'll talk about a little bit later. I'm also a comics researcher, maker and teacher. And I'm Gona Abizadeh, lecturer in comic studies at the University of Dundee and I'm also an avid reader of modern and autobiographical comics. Great, thanks everyone for for joining us. Um, I'd like to start uh, just by going around and asking everyone what they're working on at the moment and anything that's coming up uh, event-wise or publication-wise. Yeah, Chris Murray here. Uh, I'm uh, working on a a book uh, about uh, Dundee's comics history, which is called Comicsopolis. Uh, The title takes its inspiration from Jutopolis, which uh, used to be the the name for Dundee. informally uh, the, the city of jute uh, so comicsopolis is very much looking at dundee as a, a city of comics so yeah i'm, I'm looking into the the lesser told story of, of dundee's comics history uh, of course dc thompson's will will feature uh, in that uh, as one might expect but i'm also looking at uh, the forgotten history of, of dundee's uh, comics the lesser told stories and yeah as coordinator of dundee comics great space and um, we're actually going through quite a bit of change at the moment and we're moving um, building, or rather we're moving the room within the building. We're still based in the Vision building uh, on Green Market in Dundee, but we're moving from across units. And so we're having a bit of a break where we'll get all that set up. And we run comics workshops for school children on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and they will be starting up again in February. So a little bit of a break. Um, and we're looking forward to all the kids coming in and making amazing comics that they make. And I have a, um, a book coming out in May of this year called uh, Representation and Memory in Graphic Novels. And this has been a really fun project to work on and one that's 
um, allowed me to talk a little bit about some pretty well-known um, comics and graphic novels like Persepolis um, by Marjorie Satrapi, but also looking at how memory is represented in some lesser-known works. So that's been a really exciting journey. Great. So what we're going to do um, to kick off is uh, I've asked everyone to bring in uh, a classic comic and a contemporary comic of their choosing. And uh, we're going to kick off uh, with Chris. Can you talk a little bit about what you've brought in and why you've brought these comics in specifically? Yeah, indeed. Uh, the old comic that I've brought in is uh, actually Streamline Comics number four, uh, which is a, a British uh, superhero comic from way back in 1947. Uh, this uh, features a, a British superhero called uh, Streamline. Uh, this is a comic that was originally uh, created uh, by uh, Dennis uh, Gifford, who later went on to become a comics historian. Uh, at this point in the 40s, he was a, a comics writer and artist uh, and was also working quite closely with Bob Monkhouse, who later went on to become a radio and TV personality, uh, but at this time uh, was also trying his hand at comics. Uh, the reason I brought this one in is because uh, I've been working on these comics uh, uh, quite a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, I've just uh, uh, finished uh, and published a book called The British Superhero, uh, for which this is a shameless plug. Uh, and uh, I spent a lot of time in that looking at the forgotten British, uh, British superheroes, uh, particularly from the 40s and 50s. I think most people know Marvel Man uh, and so on by Mick Angle well, later. Uh, recreated and relaunched in Warrior by, by Alan Moore uh, and also people know Zenith and, and other, uh, other characters like that but there's, there's a long history of, of British uh, comic, uh, comic uh, superheroes uh, which uh, I was really trying to bring attention to in the book. Uh, what I particularly like about this issue of, uh, of Streamline, uh, this is actually an issue when Dennis Gifford had, uh, had stopped drawing it and another artist Brian Berry comes in uh, what was really interesting about the, the, the initial issues that uh, Dennis Gifford was drawing is he was doing a kind of imitation of Jack Kirby. He was particularly looking at uh, early 1940s Captain America comics, but then Gifford moved on to some other things and Brian Berry took over uh, doing the, the art uh, on, uh, on Streamline. Uh, what I particularly like about it is it's a really interesting combination uh, of a British style, quite cartoony, humorous style, which was kind of common in, in British comics at the time, and also the more uh, action-orientated uh, uh, American style. Uh, to be honest, it's, it's a rather awkward mix of those two styles, but that's, that's what I find uh, really interesting, the British take uh, on uh, what is often seen, uh, perhaps inaccurately, but is often seen as an American genre, the, the superhero. So I find that a really kind of uh, fascinating, uh, fascinating mix. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, British uh, publishers started to uh, start to turn to superhero comics was, of course, their, their enormous popularity in America. Uh, Superman was reprinted in the, the British comic Triumph by Magnetic Press uh, not long after it appeared uh, in American comics. Uh, DC Thompson's uh, here in Dundee, uh, in response to that, created their own uh, superhero, The Amazing Mr. X. Uh, there were a few other British uh, superheroes uh, in the in the forties. Uh, Dennis Gifford had uh, created uh, Mister Muscle, uh, who, who appeared for a time in Dynamic Comics uh, in uh, 19, uh, 1945. Uh, when the war started, though, 
the American comics, which had been appearing through the through the thirties, uh, I think the forties, uh, started to disappear. Uh, part of that uh, was due to uh, an import ban, which was uh, related uh, to the war. Uh, there were uh, uh, things getting shipped over uh, uh, to support uh, the war effort, uh, and also uh, British publishers were struggling uh, with paper rationing. So the import ban uh, was really to kind of maximise uh, the essential war materials coming into the country and also protect British publishers uh, from, uh, from uh, international competition in that way. Uh, what that did was uh, create a situation where there wasn't uh, many American comics uh, on the market or available anymore. Uh, these were much more glamorous and colourful and exciting than many of the British comics at the time. And uh, British comics readers had become accustomed to this, uh, this material. Uh, so when that material disappeared, uh, some British publishers started to pick up uh, the slack. Uh, so uh, many British comics, which purported to be American comics, uh, appeared during this time. Uh, some of them appeared from a publisher uh, in Glasgow called Carton Art Productions, which actually had a sense price on the cover and uh, appeared in the format and size uh, of, of American comics, trying to present themselves as being the glamorous American comics, but they never got anywhere near, uh, near America. Uh, they were British comics through and through. Uh, Streamline, uh, the comic that I brought in, uh, is, is very much in that tradition. Uh, it's of the kind of size uh, and shape that looks like it might be uh, an American comic, but uh, of course it, it's very much a, a British uh, production. Uh, this was published uh, by a publisher called Cardal, uh, which was based uh, in Manchester, uh, and uh, Dennis Gifford uh, created this character, Streamline. Uh, he's identified in the first issue of being the speediest fighter in the world. Uh, and the character Keenan King is a scientist uh, who invents a mysterious elixir X, which he injects into himself after witnessing a crime. Uh, so the first episode has uh, has a crime uh, occurring, and then he promptly shoots up in the middle of the street and turns into turns into uh, supervillain, uh, superhero rather. This is very much uh, influenced by uh, by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's Captain America, uh, and that was very very explicit. In the in the in the artwork uh, by Gifford, uh, later on uh, in this issue, in issue four, it, it's a, it's a fascinating little little story. Totally quite odd. Uh, we have uh, a Streamline uh, in the, in the first page uh, punching uh, a villain in the face, and it says the fastest fighter in the world battles for the existence of civilization when he in, uh, meets the insane Doctor Dumar. Uh, and uh, as the story starts, we encounter a streamline, uh, a Keenan King, uh, the scientist receiving a letter uh, from another scientist, and then he goes off to meet him. Uh, they meet mysteriously at night in a darkened alleyway, uh, and uh, the scientist uh, tells him that he's been working uh, on atomic energy in a laboratory. A few days ago, a visitor, a scientist named Dr. Dumar, uh, walked into his lab and they talked and compared notes. <laughs> When he left the room to get some drinks, Dumar must have skipped out through the French windows, stealing all his notes on atomic energy. And that's a good excuse. And he says, and the scientist says, if those notes were put into practice, anything might happen. And then in the paper today, he reads of mysterious explosions in an island off the coast of Scotland. Keenan King, a streamline, determines to, to find out what the connection might be. Zooms off to this uh, mysterious... Scottish island and is promptly uh, met by a series of explosions. 
uh, he encounters a, a strange being who looks a little bit like, uh, like uh, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, flat head, big gruff character, conducting experiments. Uh, and uh, Streamline, without asking very many questions, promptly leaps in to the attack uh, and, and battles this, uh, this monstrous creature uh, until the creature disappears into some underground uh, passages. Uh, Streamline follows him into the secret tunnel and discovers a laboratory and then uh, meets uh, a pair uh, plotting uh, the downfall of civilization. Uh, one is a, is a, is a grumpy looking, uh, grumpy looking uh, uh, monstrous character uh, and uh, the other one uh, has, a, has a somewhat kind of uh, dressed somewhat, somewhat like a, a fascist as a kind of Nazi, uh, perhaps suggestion of a, of a Nazi uh, su uh, supervillain. Streamline uh, leaps in, uh, fists flying, and, and starts uh, starts punching, uh, and smashes uh, the machinery, which is somehow going to uh, blow up the houses of parliament, the houses of common commons, uh, and then he, he chases the the, uh, the villains uh, as they attempt to escape, uh, and uh, delivers uh, a chin rattling punch uh, to to the main villain, and says, and so ends Doctor Dumar, uh, and believe me, kids. All those who plan for world conquest, conquest will end up the same way. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's an interesting little story uh, in that uh, I think what was what was going on here with Streamline and many of the other British British comics, they're they're creating these superhero stories which are quite. This is 1947, but it's quite influenced by the American comics of the late the late 30s. Uh, they're presenting themselves as being uh, being American comics and in an American comic style, uh, but the stories are often quite quite odd, a little bit a little bit tongue in tongue in cheek, a little bit silly, uh, a little bit naive in some ways. And in some of these stories, I think that that's uh, that's due to their production schedules. They're produced very quickly. They're produced very cheaply, and so on. But there's also a kind of way in which uh, British creators often can take the, the idea of the superhero very seriously. The, the American comics, are, are the, the characters are much more patriotic and square-jawed and, uh, and so on, and the stories are a little bit more earnest. I think British, uh, British creators uh, responding to the, the kind of desire, uh, the reader's desire for superheroes and these glamorous American-style stories that were producing this material, but I think they were doing it somewhat tongue-in-cheek. These comics often are kind of taking the mickey out of the earnestness of some of some of those stories and i think this is a is a good uh, good example of of that and uh, as i mentioned the, the, the style of the, of the, the stories is sometimes a little bit crude but uh, it's it's also quite humorous i think british uh, comics creators were often working more in a humor tradition than in a, in a superhero or superheroic adventure tradition and the collision of those those two styles often create stories which are kind of quite tonally odd uh, but, but also uh, also I think that adds something to them. I'm really struck by the um, art style of this comic and the, and the use of what looks like washes as well as a cross hatching in the background. I was wondering, yeah, give me your thoughts about that. Yeah, the backgrounds are often often very simple which uh, in some in some of the panels they're just kind of blank white space. I think that's talking to the kind of the speed of the production, but in some of them they've tried, they've done something a little bit a little bit differently. There's some there's some kind of process uh, effect going on there, a kind it's of mechanical, like yeah, yeah look, it kind of evokes yeah. etching, but it looks like a kind of mechanical cross hatching yeah. and so on. And it, there's also 
and you know, there's, there's, there's some things going on there that I think they've they've tried to give it a little bit of a little bit of kind of texture and, and visual interest. It's also produced on exceptionally cheap paper, <laughs> and that, that again comes from the, the paper rationing of the time. Mm -hmm. the, the small British publishers that, that, that were putting out comics at this time were just getting comics uh, from wherever they could, uh, getting paper rather from wherever they could. Uh, and so ma many of these comics, are the, the printing is, is is very simple, it's black and white, sometimes with a very simple uh, colour cover, or maybe just two colours, uh, colours yellow and, and red uh, in this uh, in this uh, in this example. But but yeah, they're, they're fascinating little, little documents uh, of, a, of a time. Uh, and, and many of the, the these anthology comics, they might have a superhero uh, comic or adventure comic on the cover, but they've also got other little humor strips. There's, there's a great old strip called Inky, uh, the, ink, the Imp of Inkpot uh, by Dennis Gifford. Uh, and it starts with uh, a pen uh, coming in uh, from out of panel and drawing this, this character who addresses the, uh, the, the comics uh, artist, the creator. Uh, he speaks out to the, uh, to the artist and says, hiya boss, what am I going to do today? And then in the next panel, uh, Dennis Gifford, the artist, is drawing in a building that has a sign that says school. And the character leaps up and goes, oh no, not that. And then in the next panel, he runs off panel. Uh, and uh, so a very kind of uh, metafictional uh, and, uh, and playful uh, stuff. And this is the kind of thing that Dennis Gifford, for all his love of American uh, superhero comics, is an attempt to bring these uh, into, into, into British comics. Uh, this is the kind of stuff he was much more comfortable with, these one-page uh, humour uh, strips. He does, he, does a, he does a brilliant, brilliant job of, uh, of parodying uh, the, the, the school humour strip, uh, but, but also kind of uh, parodying the kind of role of the comics creator uh, in that. The more modern comics uh, that I've uh, brought in are uh, Alan Moore and Kev O'Neill's uh, uh, comic The Tempest, uh, the latest uh, Installment, at least, uh, arc of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, and uh, that's three issues in uh, at the moment. Uh, I mean, this is uh, uh, Moore and O'Neill, kind of really at their at the best, at the, the top of their games, as far as, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's also uh, advertised as being uh, the last comics that they're going to work on. Uh, whether that will be the case or not, I, I think uh, <laughs> we've heard Alan Moore say this before uh, that he's retiring from comics, but. But we'll we'll see what what happens. But the thing that I'm really interested in uh, about these comics uh, is that uh, Moore's stories uh, really seem to be harking back uh, to exactly the, the the comics that I was looking at uh, in the book. There are many superhero uh, comics, uh, British superhero characters from the 40s and 50s uh, being uh, being referred to uh, in uh, in these comics, which I kind of find fascinating. Uh, when the first issue of uh, uh, the Tempest came out. I had about three seconds when I was really excited as I was flicking through it, seeing all these characters that I'd written about in the book and was pretty convinced that most people had never heard about. And I thought, Alan Moore's read my book. <laughs> <laughs> and then it dawned on me slowly that I think what he was actually doing was looking at the, uh, uh, at the, the books that Dennis Gifford did in the 70s, such as Super Duper Superman, which was uh, a, a book which is all about the, the British uh, British superheroes. There's not a lot written on those British superheroes, uh, but Dennis Skifford did a did a little bit of work on that. So I think Alan Alan Moore has been uh, uh, been looking at some of that stuff for his his research uh, rather than my book Tear.
course, is down my cheek at the very <laughs> thought. Uh, but it was it was a nice three seconds of hubris, uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you know, I'd been slavishly following Alan Moore's work for many decades, so it's about time that was reversed, uh, perhaps. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the last last act of this uh, series, uh, is is really fascinating, and I think uh, is all we've come to expect from from the league uh, a really uh, well researched uh, and uh, uh, and playful uh, look at, uh, at comics history. Uh, but also uh, very, very formally uh, inventive. I think uh, the work that O'Neill's uh, doing uh, doing on this is, is really, really quite uh, quite striking. So you know, if, if anybody is is not yet uh, picking up uh, *League of Extraordinary Gentlemen: Tempest*, uh, I thoroughly uh, recommend it. Uh, the third issue is uh, just out, and that's uh, focusing on the great uh, British uh, girls' comic tradition and, and referencing that quite a lot, which is really fun. Uh, and I've just seen on the internet the cover uh, for the fourth uh, issue, which is due out uh, this month, uh, I believe. Uh, and uh, that is uh, referencing uh, DC Thompson's comics. Uh, Mina Murray uh, is appearing as, as Minnie the Minx. Uh, and so uh, I'm very much looking forward uh, to that. So just looking at the design of, of these uh, these comics, they seem to be riffing on on uh, you know the classics illustrated and the TV Twenty One and, and and like you say the the Beano, um, but the interior art as well. What I find quite interesting, well, we've got the comics out in front of us here, um, is that the, the art is actually uh, actually kind of riffing on your initial comic choice a little bit when it goes into the black and white artwork. Um, how how would someone actually get hold of of these early uh, streamlined comics? How did you find this? Well, uh, these these comics are. Uh, are quite hard to get hold of. I mean, I, I sourced uh, uh, many of them uh, on uh, eBay. Uh, some of them you can get at relatively decent prices, uh, but some of them are, are, are somewhat eye-watering, uh, eye-wateringly priced. They, they are quite difficult to get hold of. There are a couple of uh, collections uh, that, that deal uh, with this. There's a, there's a book that came out uh, a few years ago. It's called uh, The Great British Fantasy. Uh, superheroes, and uh, that reprints uh, some of these some of these comics. Uh, again, there's also Dennis Gifford uh, did uh, did uh, little collections back in the seventies and eighties, such as Super Duper Superman, which you can get on eBay for a decent price. It's usually just the covers that that, that reprints rather than the, rather than the stories. Uh, but you know, if if anyone does want to find out more about these comics, I direct them toward the British superhero, <laughs> available from all good bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. or Amazon. Or Amazon, yeah. yeah, yeah. Great, thanks Chris. Uh, Damon, what have you brought along? Yeah, okay, so my um, early comic is from 1988. Uh, so at this point in time, I guess, like you guys, similarly reading a lot of, sort of 2000 AD, the occasional superhero comics, and Batman and stuff was big for me at that time with, um, Year One and Dark Knight Returns and all that happening, but then kind of looking for something else uh, and kind of trying to kind of wind it out, kind of not really that fussy about sci-fi and superheroes that much, but wanting to find other things. And then in October 1988, this kind of comic came out that kind of just was like, okay, gateway drug for me as it turned out, looking back. And it was by two um, artists from 2000 AD, Brett Ewins and Steve Dillon. They were the editors and it's Deadline magazine. And the first issue has Tank Girl on the front. It's the comic that introduced us to Tank Girl. 
I don't think I know that um, Jamie Hewlett had done small press comics before, but I don't think Tank Girl had been in that. Uh, I may be wrong. Um, but yeah, so there's strips in it from Brett Ewins and Steve Dillon, and they're kind of a little bit more not quite 2000 AD fitting, but in that sort of world, the sci-fi world, there's the Johnny Nemo's sort of pop detective futuristic character, and there's kind of conspiracy stories with Sharp and Steve Dillon. And that works a little bit more rough around the edges, but a lot of character to it, a lot of kind of things going on. But what kind of got me, that's what brought me to the comic, was these guys editing it, these guys doing strips. But then seeing things like Jamie Hewlett and Alan Martin's Tank Girl, um, Belle the Bitch by Julie Hollings, and then actually in the first issue, um, what was actually my second favourite strip from Deadline, and as it turned out, was Wired World by Philip Bond. And in Wired World, it follows the misadventures of two characters, Pippa and Elizabeth, who are just in the world, going to the laundry, just hanging out, talking about pop bands. And there's always musical acts on the t-shirts in the strips. There's like the the and all sorts of things at the time. And um, Cud were a big band that would covered in Deadline quite a lot. And in fact, one of the, I think the bass player in Cud, William Potter, drew a strip for a while. And they always kind of turn up on people's t-shirts and things. But for me, this was a cat. This was a strip about two characters we didn't see a lot, just living a normal life in the late '80s, um, Britain, in Deadline, and then just weird things happen to them. So in the first story, Wild World number um, number one in issue one of Deadline, Pippa and Elizabeth are in the laundrette and they're looking at pop stars in magazines. What were we all doing in 1988? <laughs> and they're, they're washing their underwear. It says their smalls are getting scrubbed, and then suddenly this character turns up called Marvin McLarvin, um, who's a Mar um, uh, McLaren. What's his Malcolm McLaren, Malcolm that's it, isn't yeah. it? The yeah. manager of the Sex Pistols and musical entrepreneur, um, comes in and he wants to chat to them, turn them into pop stars. So he takes them to a recording studio. This is the things that just happened in 1988. <laughs> um, so they go out of the laundry into uh, a recording studio and start recording a pop song. And he takes Elizabeth aside to do extra vocals and then Pippa's a bit upset and she wanders into the control room and thinks, this looks a bit weird. There's a radar display, artificial gravity, flight computer, not necessarily the things that become necessary for running of a recording studio, she says. And then she stumbles into the broom cupboard. And in the broom cupboard, there are like six other um, Marvin McLarvins. And it turns out that they're aliens from another world and they need to get underwear from Earthlings to save their world. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> so we've got this mashup of this domestic, day-to-day, -day, quotidian kind of lifestyle stories coming into it, with sort of pop culture references and little bits of sci-fi and stuff coming in. And for me, it was the relationship between Pippa and Elizabeth specifically as just two young women, two friends, just hanging out in the world um, that really got me going and really interested in just, and realised that I was maybe interested more in the day-to-day -day stuff rather than the sci-fi stuff, and it's kind of given me that element of it. Um, in the next issue, um, Nicobadzis, they started doing Hugo Tate's, which was actually, looking back, as my favourite story that appeared in Deadline, and Hugo Tate started as a little angry stick drawing, and then as the stories went on, the character became more fleshed out and ended up touring America and things like this. Um, but that sort of elements of day-to-day -day life, kind of pop culture references and all these things that are coming into it. And so Deadline was kind of obviously done by people coming out of 2000 AD, 
but was absorbing all the influences of the UK small press scene at the time, which I was completely unaware of. And Deadline was kind of my gateway drug into small press stuff. Then later on discovering like Eddie Campbell and Myra Hancock and all these kind of comics makers from the 80s. Um, but Deadline, yeah. First issue signed by Brett Ewins, right. you can't see on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> and just, yeah, that's that thing about me discovering comics away from kind of that sci-fi superhero um, world that I'd kind of been in but wanted to find out more stuff. So yeah, so bringing on that kind of small press, looking for things slightly further away. Um, one of the joys, actually, they've gone on to my the new book here, and one of the joys of working at Dundee Comics Creative Space is all the different people that are in the space. So we have artists in Inkpot Studios, we have PhD students, lots of young people inhabiting the space. And I get to see the stuff that they're, they're interested in and pick up comics that lie on their desks and think, so this is me keeping my finger on the pulse of what the youth are into. Um, so one book that I saw lying on someone's desk um, you know, a couple of months ago was Mami by DG Daguna, who's a... Uh, from Manila, the Philippines artist, and it's just a beautiful little comic. It's about A5 in size. It looks like it, the colour has been done kind of risograph printing, mm -hmm. or at least it's using that effect. Um, so it's like a three colour, yellow, blue, red, kind of with all sorts of screen printy risograph looking image on. But in the artwork, it's kind of really influenced by manga characters, kind of lots of space on the page lots of like expression in the people's faces what's going on and it's effectively it starts off as a crime story um in that a uh, security guard then detective is tracing an art thief and he keeps get arresting the art thief the art thief keeps getting away and he has to keep consistently chasing and so we think well okay that seems fairly straightforward at the beginning but then we realize it's actually a love story and the reason they're chasing and escaping from each other is to prolong and, and keep this kind of interest in this like story going and so you get that you get the little hints and um that there's a kind of flirtation going on there's little hearts get drawn like you would get in sort of manga comics and stuff like that as they're looking at each other with their eyes wind little stars as they're kind of flirting and looking at each other and this beautiful kind of really expressive artwork and the other thing that comes through with it is not just a love for each other but a love for food and this is one thing I really wasn't expecting in this book, but it actually um, talks a lot about the food they eat and actually has recipes and pages where they describe in, in total detail like what the food is. So they've got, he's drinking a mug of taho, which has soft silk and toffee, sugar syrup, and something called sago in the hot water. And this is what he's drinking as a mid-morning snack. So we have one page that goes away from the story and just has the detective drinking his mid-morning snack. And then they're talking about how the bowl um, of food that they have for lunch with the bone marrow that melts on top of your hot rice. Ah, it's super good. And so we're not just getting the love between two people in the detective story coming through. We're getting this love for food. And it's just like, hungry. Yes, <laughs> it's like it's, and then it comes on further on. And it actually has a point in the end because we talk, we describe how the best way to make ramen and you should drop some of the egg whites first while the soup is boiling, mix it in with sesame oil, then drop the rest of your egg, top it with green onions. And this really expressive kind of thing. And this obviously you're getting the idea that the 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 love for each other, the, the love for food is 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 as um full uh feeling as a love for each other and stuff as well. And actually what happens to the end is no real major spoilers, I don't think. But um the 
they, they end up setting up a restaurant together. Which is a beautiful kind of moment <laughs> in that once they realise that what's behind them chasing each other is this actual affection and things. And so you get gangsters turning up, you get people getting stabbed and all sorts of things going on, things that you'd expect. But it's just the charm and the lack of cynicism and just the beautiful artwork just really, really grabs me. I think the way it's printed as well really stands out. So yeah. there's no black lines, it's all kind of uh, colour holds and, and, and bold. Strong color. Yeah, so everything that would be black in the normal comic say is, is printed in blue, so the outlines are all blue and you've got those two colours on top of it. And um, as you say, and it just pulls it slight further back from looking like every, every other comic. Yeah. In a way, it's a really stylized, really nice colour choices. It's kind of almost RGB in a way, but just kind of but using and just really popping. There's a nice connection between the two stories you talk about there and that. The element of magical realism, yep. that yeah. idea of the kind of mixture of the everyday and the quotidian, as you say, but also the fantasy elements. Is, is yeah, completely. And I see that. And I think that's what I'm maybe always looking for in comics is the relationship between people, also the relationship between other things that maybe float around us that we don't maybe notice or are maybe magical or things like that and stuff as well. We're finding the magical in the real life. Yeah. But you can actually see the direct link between your first um, example uh, in Deadline and yeah. this. And they're actually thematically and actually stylistically quite similar. Yeah, actually. Uh, and that's what always interested me about Deadline is that it had these very cutting edge strips alongside the more traditional, if you want, sort of sci fi yep. uh, elements. And it get arguably ahead of its time in, in 1988, I, I, I would say. There was nothing else really like that. No, not at all. I mean, that's one thing that drew me to it at all. It's like I was obviously looking for something different, mm. not necessarily aware that I knew that I was looking for something different at the time. But then when Deadline came out, it was just like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And the fact that pop music and, and um, pop culture and everything involved in it as well was kind of sucking me in and kind of really looking for something. But yeah, as you say, it's the bringing in that indie sensibility, the indie artists, the small press artists that are coming in. And I would say that Mami, uh, the book, is really kind of, um, it's kind of, maybe that kind of small press indie version of a manga book in a way. It's kind of got that yeah. looseness of the kind of small press stuff from the 80s too. And the emphasis on um, the kind of the female friendship that you were talking about um, in that... In Wild World. Yeah, yeah, from Deadline reminds me a bit of... Um, and the kind of references to pop culture reminds me of like Love and Rockets. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see perhaps... Yes, I'd was. started reading Love and Rockets mm. about the same time mm. as Deadline came out, mm -hmm. maybe just after. Uh, because I think magazines in the UK were starting to see, I think there was a Scottish magazine called Cut, does anyone remember that? Mm -hmm. And it did it was pop music and it did yeah. comics and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they started, I think they started serialising The Death of Speedy, or they started serialising something mm -hmm. from Love and Rockets. Mm -hmm. And then about issue 20 of Deadline, they started serialising Love and Rockets as well. So they're tapping into that yeah. kind of same um, independent comic kind of scene. Yeah. And then that's another thing that I'm kind of point I wanted to make is that in 1988, you kind of had what was around you. It was really difficult to find stuff from other countries and things. So finding, I remember finding a comic in Battersea comic shop, or this would have been about 1989, visiting a friend in London, and just pulled it out of a box, and it was the Lloyd Llewellyn special from Dan Clowes. So it was the thing he did before 8-Ball, and he'd done six issues of it, and then there was a special edition issue because he was finishing it off. And I just remember pulling this out of a box, and it had sort of this, sort of 50s kind of sci-fi kind of 
modernist looking characters that he drew at that time and it just like my eyes just popped it's just like no idea what this was and it's like you were finding that's how you find things they were just by accident almost in a box in a shop and you've never been in your life before but obviously now with mammy it's we've got the internet and we've got all these different ways to find stuff you've got people's desks in the office that you work in <laughs> there's loads of great ways to find stuff that you kind of never really had in 1980. what was also interesting about deadline is the fact that initially all the strips were in black and white and mm -hmm. it was printed on newsprint so it had that kind of lo-fi kind of sensibility as well which which arguably was coming out of the sort of fanzine culture it's got a bit of a zany yeah. feel to yeah. it you know and the design work as well the design elements were were kind of a, and they were a bit more edgy than something like 2000 at the time which was a bit slicker yeah well actually because it would have been around about then that because 2000 was on newsprint and then they changed about the issue 550 or something didn't they yeah and they became slightly better quality yeah. paper and stuff like that and this is probably about the same time that deadline came out yeah so they're obviously wanting to keep that aesthetic in a way of the old 2000 AD, but bringing in the fanzine stuff as well yeah. it's also very much like in a music mag or a still mag yeah. the time it's got that very hip design yeah, yeah you've got like the face and everything yeah, about it at yeah. the time so they're obviously pulling from all of that they were getting into comics as well yeah exactly and then to be honest it's quite interesting because 2000 ad became heavily influenced by deadline uh, when it, it became it a success loaded and stuff yeah like you know it, so it yeah. kind of changed the direction of, of what it was originally kind of came out of mm -hmm. anyway yeah so it started feeded back into what it originally came from which i found really fascinating and arguably they didn't do as good a job yeah uh you know trying to replicate what deadline was doing because deadline was kind of cool by default yeah but 2008 was trying to be cool <laughs> you know at the time yeah. yeah they're trying to pull that kind of coolness back in yeah and i think i'm not sure but to me deadline's almost a a slightly forgotten comic it's like because there's there's great stories in it and tank girl's obviously the biggest character that comes out of it and stuff but i don't think there's anything like with warrior you obviously had beef of vendetta and stuff like that so that's the stuff that gets talked about a little bit more than kind of yeah. so deadline i'm not sure it's place in history is talked about in much the same reverence but for me it definitely yeah it was exactly what i was looking for in my main yeah great go on now. Oh, thank you. Um, so I've brought along two books today. Um, the kind of the classic one that I wanted to speak about is the Four Immigrants manga by Henry Yoshitaka Kiyama, and the the comic or the manga that I found um, more recently is um, an amazing short short story, if you like, by Yoshihiro Tatsumi called Hell. So both of them are by Japanese creators, but published um, quite a long distance um, apart in time. So. Um, to give a bit of context on the Four Immigrants manga, um, Henry Kiyama um, migrated from Japan to um, the United States and specifically San Francisco in 1904. And he was a visual artist and was a very skilled one. Um, he ended up studying at the San Francisco Art Institute um, where he, he could turn his hand to lots of different styles. So he was um, a fine art painter, but Luckily for us, he also drew, became very interested and ended up drawing um, comics. And what's really notable about the Four Immigrants manga is that it's a, they're, they're made up stories. It consists of 52 episodes based on the, um, if you like, the misadventures of four friends, four um, men, young men who, like Yama, are um, Japanese migrants to San Francisco. Um, and what Kiyama does in kind of in, in each of these episodes is he 
kind of translates real life events that were taking place at the time. So for example, the San Francisco, the great San Francisco earthquake and the fires that kind of ravaged the city in its wake, um, visits from um, dignitaries, um, presidents. Um, and what he allows us to do is to kind of get a glimpse back in time through these fictionalized um, episodes. Um, What's also really notable is the way that Kiyama um, draws his, that if, if anyone's had a look at the book, and, and I appreciate that it's not really a particularly well-known um, work, and I really encourage everyone to, um, to look it up. I think copies of the book are now pretty readily available through sites like Amazon. Um, but what we see in each of the episodes is the way that Kiyama um, has incorporated, for example, dress styles, um, of the time, so early 20th century um, American dress into his stories. And indeed, there's even a particular passage which is reminiscent of a, um, a film scene starring Buster Keaton. So what's quite exciting is it's not just looking at those kind of real life events, but it's also incorporating other kind of cultural influences into the work. Um, and I guess what it does is shine a light on kind of um, early 20th century experiences of migration um, from a Japanese perspective um, in, to the US. Um, and what's interesting is the way that this, this, these experiences are quite nuanced. So for example, um, in the, um, say the 20s and 30s um, and earlier as well, there were, for example, tensions between Japanese migrant cultures and let's say Chinese migrant cultures. And what Kiyama does in his, in his book is the, for example, local inhabitants, so, the, so let's say white Americans often mix up who's Japanese and who's Chinese. But for the Japanese characters, they draw very clear delineations, often problematic delineations between what they consider to be their identity and then let's say the identity of a Chinese person. So all these kinds of tensions and um, interplays between these very different cultures are really brought to life um, in his book. Um, and there's just one episode that I wanted to um, draw more attention to, which is um, a rendition of an event which came to be known as the Turlock incident, where um, Japanese workers who were um, working on farms were rounded up by, um, I think about eight men who were armed um, and taken outside. They, they were working in Turlock, but they were driven outside and just dumped at some unknown location. Um, and the motivation for the men driving them there was basically saying that you're taking our jobs, we don't want you to be you know, in competition with us, so never come back. Um, this, this event was actually brought to trial, um, but all the men were acquitted um, by an all-white jury, so the matter was resolved very quickly. But what Kiyama does is he, he takes two of his characters and brings them into this in, in a, an imagined event, uh, a, an imagined rendition, sorry, of the Turlock incident. So again, it exposes readers to these kind of historic things, but through a very different and very personal perspective. Okay. When you, so when you talk about it being a historic thing, mm. but he would be writing and drawing it as it was happening, no? Yeah. I mean, we read because it was kind of, I guess it was lost for a while and rediscovered. That's it. Yeah. But it was, it was written yeah, it's, contemporary um, with the events? Yes, I believe so. I think some of them might have been drawn a little bit, um, you know, after the event. Okay. But he, but Kiyama stayed in um, San Francisco from 1904 and then he returned to Japan just before 1924, which in fact was when 
almost all Japanese migration to the US was then banned. So, yep. um, and then he self-published the, the book in 1931 while he was still in Japan, so. Okay, yeah. and stylistically, yeah. the, the artwork, yeah. it, it actually feels quite contemporary, for, for me especially the lettering, uh, mm -hmm. and now obviously it's a translation. Yeah. So, when did this translation take place? What's the what's, yeah. the, what's the, the theory behind the lettering? Because it's quite distinctive now. Obviously, you can't see we're talking about. We will put some links up on on the website, but some of it is typeset yeah. and some of it is hand rendered. Yeah. So, what's the thinking behind that? Yeah, that actually touches on a really interesting kind of history of the work, which is that um, so Kiyama um, initially he hand lettered the comic both in. Um, Meiji era Japanese, mm -hmm. so in Japanese as well as in English. Right. And Frederick Schott, who is um, the scholar responsible for really um, putting four immigrants manga back on the scene, um, I wrote to him when I was working on my book and he actually said that in his opinion this showed what a terrible businessman <laughs> Schott was because how many people at that time were, were bilingual. Mm -hmm. so, so it was written in two languages and then when it was translated into English, the Japanese um, component was translated into the typeset. Um, but what's really nice about that is when the when the friends are speaking to each other in Japanese, if you like, mm -hmm. that's where you get the fluent typeset. Mm -hmm. But when they're speaking with, say, an English, a, a native English speaker, that's where the lettering is actually written in by hand. Yeah. So it demarcates yeah. the, the, if you like, code switching. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it came about by accident, but it looks like it, it's a happy accident because yeah. it, it, it really exactly. kind of fits with the work. And again, yeah. Um, the examples we were looking at, again, it does have a kind of contemporary feel. It does. Um, yeah. Because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got that kind of, um, it's fairly, doesn't have a lot of, um, you know, uh, it's got fairly clean lines. Something else that's interesting is the very regimented um, grid layout yeah. as well, and that the, the panels are numbered. Yes, they are. Uh, so again, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, I think, um, uh, but yeah, you're right. The panels all the panels all stick to the same grid line, yeah. um, and that's consistent the, the whole way through. I'm not entirely sure about the numbering, but I think it might have been um, for the purpose of helping direct readers. So if, if, for example, Japanese readers were reading manga in the opposite yeah. direction, um, I don't think these pages have been flipped, although I may, I'm, I need to double check that. So it might have been to kind of say to readers, right. actually you're reading in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. great. And your contemporary Yeah, comic. and the contemporary is, um, is a short manga called Hell by um, the Japanese artist, um, there's some, um, of uh, your listeners might be familiar with uh, Tatsumi and um, he really came to prominence after the war um, where with his style of gekika um, manga which gekika means dramatic pictures so what he was really interested in exploring was kind of I guess really the darker aspects of post-war life in Japan um, he talks about how a lot of in an interview he talks a bit about how a lot of the narratives even within Japan itself was about this kind of idea of recovery and, and but to him at times felt a bit overly kind of um, romanticized. So he was interested in exploring the daily experiences of just regular people um, after the war. So um, Hell, the, the, so Hell is one of the comics in a, um, in a collection called Goodbye. Again, the collections of his mangas are quite readily available. Um, and 
it's a fictionalised account, but um, it's about a photographer who um, who visits Hiroshima on the day um, after the bomb, atom bomb, was dropped on, over the city. And it's a really interesting story. I don't want to give away the ending, but it's about a war photographer and the images that he takes and the way that a particular image starts to take on a life of its own after it's eventually published in a newspaper. And I should say that Tatsumi's stories generally are very, they have very dark, very um, quite, quite um, uh, difficult content in a way. And really what I think Hell tries to explore is the way that, you know, we might try and we see an image and we might spin a particular story around it, mm -hmm. but in fact that story might be inaccurate or indeed entirely wrong. So I think for me, this story has a lot of relevance to the way that, for example, news items are shared online. You know, we have this whole phenomenon of fake news, um, the concept, but it's about thinking about how thinking, reading images critically and thinking about how they can actually give us misinformation, even with the best of intentions. Um, and Tatsumi's explained that um, he was influenced by the shadow photographs, um, which when the bomb, um, when the atom bomb um, was released, the way that the, the blast from the bomb imprinted, um, you know, objects onto a, onto walls, for example, because of the heat of the bomb. Yeah. Um, so he did actually use a photograph to kind of, um, as the origin of his story. Right, okay. So, yeah. And there is a, a kind of relationship mm. between the two. There is a kind of thematic way, but also uh, visually. Yeah. Uh, between the two works, which is quite interesting, because the um, the modern collection, uh, I think, is again it, it works in quite a kind of grid like layout. It's not it kind of bursting out of frames. It's quite regimented, That's and uh, and the the lettering obviously been translated. Yeah. So the uh, the speech bones take up quite a majority of um, of a lot of the panels yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, is is this kind of style? Uh, do you see the direct uh, relationship between your first book and this? Yeah, I think it's really that's really interesting. I think the way I do see a link between the two is well, first of all, they do both utilize that kind of fairly consistent and formal grid structure. Mm -hmm. Um, but also both of them are black and white, mm -hmm. and I think both of them are interested in kind of providing something of a documentary experience. I mean, not that either of them are strictly, I, I, I wouldn't say that either of them are documentary style works, yeah. but um, and indeed I think Tatsumi, for example, is more influenced by film in the way that he portrays the events. Yeah. Um, but again, a bit like what Damon was saying with his examples, the two works are looking at everyday life and about the way that, you know, ordinary people kind of try to survive in circumstances that can often be quite harrowing or difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. And I wonder, just thinking about this now, the connection between the two, because obviously um, Kiyama's work was kind of lost for a while, wasn't it, until yeah. it was rediscovered. Um, so I'm assuming that Tatsumi wouldn't have been aware of it. It's possible he was. I mean, because obviously he, um, if you view the My Drifting Life, mm -hmm. the, his autobiography yeah. of invention of Gekiga in the studios yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. 
is of, and they're, they're striving for to create work within re, the real world, yeah. so to speak, and stuff. Exactly. And to me, it's like that was already existing in the four immigrants manga, yeah. isn't it? And it's like whether they had that or not, or whether they knew that existed, exactly. again, that's what they were striving for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Certainly in English, the Four Immigrants Mangle was only published um, for the first time in 1999. Yeah. And um, so there would have been, and I, I don't know to what extent it was widely distributed or even widely published back in Japan. Um, but absolutely in terms of, so I don't know if Tatsumi would have been aware of mm -hmm. um, Kiyama's work. One of the things that fascinates me about too as well is the, how they are being adapted as well uh, in other media. Because um, have you seen the animated film Tatsumi? No. So it takes no. so it's interspersed with a little bit of little bio, oh, yes. and then it has dramatizations yeah. of yeah. some of the stories. So Hell is one of the stories ah, that's okay. dramatized and, and it's animated. It's it's really nicely done actually. Um, and then I've recently found out the Four Immigrants manga is a musical. It is, yeah, <laughs> it is. I um I actually got in touch with the it's it was produced by um, TheatreWorks in Silicon Valley. And I think it was premiered for the first time um, early last year. And I actually got in touch with the theatre and, and it's been, I think, really um, successfully well, and very well received. And what's really interesting is that in the adaptation to the musical, they've changed the title to an American musical manga. So, and this is something I talk a bit about, um, and I should say, a plug, but I talk about both of these works in the first chapter of my book. <laughs> but... Um, What's really interesting is to see the evolution of the name over time. Um, and I think manga is such a popular um, art form in the US and indeed in other parts of the world that it sat well for the musical adaptation. Great. Well, I'm sure we can maybe find some uh, references to that online uh, if, we, if we do a search. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So for some of the more obscure titles, what we'll do is we'll put some links uh, on the website. Uh, to where you can see some of these uh, and uh, next time we'll have uh, some more guests come in with their classic and contemporary comics so thanks very much everyone, for coming along today and uh, hopefully we'll have you back again soon definitely thanks thanks cheers, cheers. special guest interview cam kennedy part one Welcome, Cam, to the Comic Scene Podcast. I wonder if you could talk about how you got started in the comics industry. Well, um, let me see now. It goes back to uh, it'd be about 66, 1966. Now, I'd been living in France, and I came back to Scotland. And uh, before I'd left Scotland, I'd been working in commercial art studios. And... Um, so well, do I want to go back to a commercial arts job? Anyway, a friend of mine who was a commercial artist and a really good painter, he said that he had been trying to get into comics. And I said, oh, let's tell me about that. And he said he'd uh, done some sample pages and sent them off to DC Thompson's in Dundee. And uh, he said, you know, the people that do Urwell and I said, no, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I said, how did you get on? He said, no, they, they didn't, wasn't, I didn't get any work from them. He says, but you should, you should try it, he says, because you're always sort of drawing military things, etc., etc. Anyway, I thought, well, nothing to lose. So I, I did some sample pages, um, 
some people in uniform, I did some drones of tanks and trucks, planes, and sent them off. And um, I got word back from Mr. Checkley, Chick Checkley, who was the editor of Commando at the time, and um, went through, went through on the train to, to Dundee, met Checkley, had a talk, and came home back to my place uh, with a script. And that was how it started, we working with DC Thompson. Very good experience, because um, certainly what I found, it was a company that would always maintain a level of work for you. Um, and also um, just guaranteed, which at that time was really good when you're just newly married and you've got a, a level of work, a guarantee of work, it's fine. So, stayed with DC Thompson, I suppose, and until about into the early 70s when I went back to live in France. And uh, DC Thompson, uh, I, I arrived in France. <laughs> with two scripts that had, I still had to complete. And um, I sent them back in. To give them their due, I mean, at that time, exchange rates were very sort of dubious, but they arranged their accounts department, arranged for my cheque went out, they sent it to France, and they arranged it so that I didn't really have any loss through exchange rate or getting the money, getting the check changed, which I thought was pretty decent of them. Yeah. yeah. And um, then, well, probably into about 73, I was, I was still finishing off a, a script for DC Thompson, and then I went on to, to do some painting. Yeah, I mean, what, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So, what what was the trans? What was the thought behind that? The transition from going from comics back into painting, because uh, that's an interesting period of your career that isn't often spoken about. Yeah, I think possibly because when I left France in in '66, because I was getting married to a French girl, and I left France '66 and back to Scotland. But um, I had been doing a bit of painting in France. I had sold a few paintings, and I was confronted when I was in Normandy by people turning up and saying, oh, you're back. Um, are you painting again? And I said, well, there's an idea. And they said, yeah, because we like some of your stuff. So I just, I started painting, and people were buying it. And I was managing to make a yeah, small living with it. But I also had a friend from 1965, the first time I went to Normandy, a friend who had a printing business and he took it over from his father and he was trying to expand it a bit. And one day I was <clears throat> in his office and they obviously received a bill in the post and he went, oh, it was so expensive. I said, what's that? And he said, well, I see that a lot of this stuff for the print and he said, I have to I have to send it up to Paris and they do the artwork, they do the they set up the page for me and you know, for you know, cheese labels or even letterheads. I said, I can do that. I said, I trained in, in Glasgow, I was in a commercial art studio. And they said, Can you? I said, Yes. Or by that time of course it was we <laughs> and they he said, Well that'd be good. He said, could you 
do stuff for me and then I said of course so that was me I had the painting to do make me a bit of money from that and I got a well a kind of guaranteed job with with my friend's friend doing all sorts of commercial art stuff and in fact later on about probably about 1974 or something he expanded his business and he um, just told me to set up a graphic studio in the, in the printing works, which I did. And it's, as far as I know, it's still there. I mean, he sold it and moved on. He's retired. But it's called Graph 2000, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I didn't know about 2000 AD at the time. Really. Um, I only found out about 2000 AD when I came back from France right. in 78. And in fact, I was talking to somebody and they said they'd seen this comic called Zuad. And if you looked at the logo, you can't read it as Zuad. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, so, um, yeah, well, I, I came back from France and by that time I was divorced and they had two little boys to look after. So back to Glasgow just to sort of get a breath of air and sort of get my bearings, etc. And thought, well, maybe I'll go back into doing comics. Um, I then did some sample drawings, sent them off to, I think it was Battle at the time, sent it off to Battle, and the editor of Battle phoned me and said, I've taken the liberty of putting a, a script in the post to you. I thought, oh, well, that was easy. <laughs> it was very, I think his name was Dave. Dave Hunt. Yeah. Never ever met him. Spoke to him on the phone many a time. Really nice. Dead right guy. Mm -hmm. um, and from battle, I went on to, well, 2000 AD then got in touch with me and wanted me to do Rogue Trooper. And then John and Alan, John Wagner and Alan Grant had been asking the editor, Steve McManus, of, uh, who also was the editor of, of uh, Rogue Trooper, would, could I work in Dread? And <laughs> Steve McManus said, well, this is what I heard then. And Steve McManus said, oh, no, Cam's, Cam's very busy on Rogue and he's really enjoying it. And, and I don't think he would want to do any Judge Dread. This is the same editor for, yeah. for Dread as for... Anyway, the, something must have happened, and I got a script for, for Dread, my first Dread. I think it was called The Suspect. And then I started doing Rogue Trooper and Dread in the same week. So I had three pages of Rogue and, and six of Dread, penciled and inked. Um, and I must have done that for a couple of years, two years ago. Oh. <laughs> We've just been uh, awoken by a clock in the room. Um, so, <laughs> so basically, you were putting out what maybe nine pages a week, mm -hmm. um, and obviously turning that around quite quickly. And actually, quite different stories, different within the science fiction genre. Yeah. One was more military based, yeah. and Judge Dredd was more about the characters and the citizens of yeah. Mega City One. Mm -hmm. Do you think that? Because you came in from that background of having done 
you know, the, the commando work and then your, your painting work and, and, and it meant you could turn your hand to pretty much anything. I, I found that, I found that, um, of course, I was younger then, I was on fire. And uh, I found that um, I could just very quickly, I mean, I could sometimes, if you, let's take painting, I would be painting a figure. Um, and then I would decide to do a landscape and just move straight on just to the next canvas beside it <laughs> and do a landscape. But I never, I don't do landscapes because there's, there are some people who rely on landscapes and that's the only way they have of making a living. So I don't do that because I, I do other things. I suppose because I, I realise I can do most things in that. Yeah. And, and, it's, and as I said, there are some people who that's their only way of making a living. But um, so the the switching like from in the morning doing rogue and in the afternoon doing dread, it didn't uh, it didn't affect me at all. It didn't bother me. Yeah. But it was just on fire. Yeah. Like a lot of the, the creative, young creative people we see nowadays, you know, it's great, it's wonderful to see. Yeah. I think it's important that you you have that, those transferable skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you were able to do that, it seemed, um, with these. But it seemed to me, as a reader, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you, there was a preference for dread. Is that is that true, would you say? Um, did you notice that in the drawings? I, I, it looked like you were having more fun on dread than you were on Rogue Trooper. From from my point of view, well, I, may, I might be wrong. Well, Trooper, uh, Rogue Trooper and dread, different writers. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the writer on Dread, John, John Wagner and Alan Grant, a lot of the time, um, they knew me. They, they, we all discovered with much the, the same sense of humour. Um, so I suppose John would, he would write a script and say to Steve McManus, this one's for Cam because there would be a bit of, sort of like humour in it or something wacky I would have to draw. Um, the writer and Rogue Trooper, Jerry, I, didn't, I never ever met him. and still haven't met him to this day. Mm. <coughs> Funnily so, enough, he lived in Dundee for a while. Did he? <laughs> yeah, he did, yeah. Wow. I found out recently he was, he was actually born in, in, in Dundee. Uh, Goodness yeah. me. Did a lot of work for DC Thompson as well. Um, yeah. yeah, but there were definitely different styles of, of strip and the scripts were different and the humour I think was is vitally important in, in, in Dread. Yeah, it's, I mean I think maybe sometimes Jerry did try to put a bit of humour into what the, the microchips were saying. Yeah, and all that. yeah. But it, um, no, it stayed pretty serious as far as I'm concerned. The Trooper was serious and Dread was, was fun to do. Mm-hmm. So, about, so at that point uh, when Rogue ended you kind of moved over to dread oh yeah pretty much semi-regular yeah uh, at that point so i remember mm. strips like you know midnight surfer and uh the warlord uh, uh story run and uh, numerous one-offs uh which you really seem to have fun with uh, as right. well and occasional color work as well at that point or was it all black and white at that point for you no i never i never uh no, I didn't. The only colour work I did was uh, a few of the, I did a few Rogue Trooper covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the only colour work I did. Well, well I, 
can't remember if it was maybe like later on, and I did a few dread covers in colour. Yeah. I can't even remember how many I did, if it's maybe only one, or if it's ten, I can't remember. But that, that kind of, at that point, um, it was letterpress, it was quite primitive printing, and when it did move <coughs> over to the better quality printing and paper stock, then it was able yeah. to accommodate your, your own colouring. So uh, to me, it looked like your colouring was actually a lot of influence from your painting background were filtering into the way you coloured well, the comics. I that, think, yeah, that's, that's, that's an absolute given. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I worked with colour, so, um, yeah. I mean, I remember when I first did Dark Empire, how Lucasfilm commented on the colour. Mm -hmm. In fact, apparently, George Lucas himself has, had asked has this guy ever worked in movies? Um, but I never met George Lucas. I don't know if it's true or not. I think it's true. His assistant told me. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's as good as. Um, so yeah, that, that so you you were you were on Dread, and then um, it was around about the time, I suppose, of what they called the British invasion into American comics. Mm -hmm. So how did you get caught up in that? Well, um, we were. If you went down to London Coins at the time, um, that was when all the, the usual guys were there. And then one of the years I went down and there was a whole crowd of Americans from DC Comics. And they, they were over and you know, wanted to scoop up like Brian Boland, Dave Gibbons, McMahon, I'm not sure about. It might have been. I said I think Americans would appreciate Mike's style. You know, that specific style, and I, I, I just can't see them being that far advanced that they could appreciate it. <laughs> um, and if, oh, I can't remember various other people, but they never, they never, well, obviously Alan Moore, they never approached John, John Wagner and Alan Grant, and uh, anyway, anyway, they decided to come up with this story. It was the Outcast twelve part, twelve book series. And I, would, I went over, I was chosen, elected to go over and ask DC about a contract and so we could get this work started. Because they, they had already accepted it. They said, yeah, yeah, we want to do this. That's great. You guys doing it. And we eventually did it. Yeah. Eventually did it. And um, so that, that was me. But, I mean, I wasn't, because I was never a huge fan of American superhero comics, it just... I just didn't see the point of them, really. The only one that interested me would have been Batman, and I don't even know if I ever read a Batman. You know, but I knew, it was, I knew it was the best as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I didn't do a, a big, big lot, but what I did do is I met a lot of American artists, and I met an American artist called Steve Bissett, who's kind of famous for having worked for a long time with Alan Moore on Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, was that Marvel or DC? Uh, DC. That was DC. So Steve and I hit it off really well. And I was over in Vermont in his house and he said, I got a guy you should meet. He's wanting to be a comic book writer. He's been a poet and this and that. And uh, I met Tom Veach and um, we, we got talking and it, exchanged a few ideas and Tom came up with um, the light and darkness for the script, the light and darkness for. Mm -hmm. 
So that was, um, was went, must have gone to see Archie Goodwin. It was epic, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Went to see Archie Goodwin. And I took a couple of samples along, and Archie said, Oh, this is, he really liked it. I mean, Archie was just wonderful, wonderful editor. And became a good friend and came to visit me in Scotland. Um, got a preview story about that, but I won't, I'm not. Tell him just now. <laughs> um, and uh, I did Light and Darkness well, and it was, it was very successful. Um, but uh, yeah. um, and it was and it was serialized uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but you retained ownership of that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So long as they tell me. Yeah, yeah. So was that a dis I mean, at the time, that was actually quite innovative. You know, because it hadn't. Nowadays, people try and retain the rights a lot more. Mm -hmm. So, what was the reasoning behind that? Was that the deal they offered you that you retained the rights, or did you go in? No, well, I see probably because I mean, I knew in France that a lot of the who were light years ahead of the Americans as far as you know, graphic albums go and things, graphic novels, and I knew that most of the artists retained the rights. That was it. That was European law. Mm -hmm. You see, there was a European law came in about, um, what was it called? Uh, uh, moral right. Yeah. But America and Britain never accepted that until years and years later, probably in the 90s, I think. Um, well, Light and Darkness was out a lot earlier than that. And um, well, I, just, I just said that I wanted well, Tom insisted as well because Tom had been kind of brainwashed by me about <laughs> we have to keep things. And I think at the same time, there would be people like Frank Miller talking about it, and some, a lot of American artists and writers were, were realizing that people, you know, like Jack Kirby, had really been used by Marvel. You know, they created these characters, and Marvel walked away millionaires, you know. So there was this whole thing going on. And it's not, it wasn't being greedy or anything, it's just that you felt that, well, if you created it, you've surely got the right to, to own it and keep it. It should be yours. Mm -hmm. So that was that, that was how it came about that I, I asked, I said to Archie, you know, about um, that they want to keep the rights and also keep my, my artwork. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because it was full colour. Uh, hand painted, hand painted yeah. yeah, and the covers is again very strong pieces of work in their own in their own right. So yeah. it's very distinctive, and that yeah. uh, as a reader again would seem to be a big a big turning point in the production quality of 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 how it was reproduced. It was able to hold Wasn't up, it yeah, you know. Yeah. And at that time there was a real change, and and as a as a reader at the time, uh, it was actually quite hard to get in the UK uh, at, at that at that point. Uh, but you know. Where there's a will, there's a way, you know. So it did, yeah. it did appear yeah. over here, but it wasn't that easy to, to, to pick up on. Well, Certainly then, not in Dundee. And also because this is before Amazon and eBay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you can you know type in and say, can I get? Yeah. 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 So after that, that did that then led on to the collaboration with you and Tom and uh, Dark Empire. But how did that specifically come about? Oh, that came about well. In between time and roundabout light and darkness, I was doing a few other things. I mean, I remember I did a couple of issues of Spectre for DC. I did a Daredevil 
with Gregory Wright, who was an editor in Marvel. Um, now I'm trying to remember when I did The Punisher and Blood on the Moor, if that was before or after. I think that was after Dark Empire rejoined. Yeah, I think so, yeah. When we brought The Punisher to Scotland. (laughs) 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 That was funny. Um, So, uh, we'd finished Light and Darkness, and then I I was kind of in touch from time to time with Tom. He was on the phone, and he was getting so excited sometimes. would say things that oh so and so we want the option light and dark let's make a movie you know <laughs> and I thought well I've been down this road a wee bit before you know it's, it's and the other also the whole thing about an option is it's 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 your creation but somebody wants to give you let's say three thousand dollars and it's kind of like they put it on hold you know so it's like eighteen months you can't do anything else with that of course they're not eighteen months. They could decide that they are going to go ahead and make a film, or else they could just tell you, "Thanks very much, but that eighteen months, you may well have lost interest from other people." You know, thing. It's just, yeah. I just never went down that road. I couldn't be bothered with it. Yeah. So he said, um, he said to me, "We need to do something." He said, uh, "He said, uh, what about Star Wars?" I said, "Tom, I don't know." Thing about Star Wars, I've this, please. I, I have no idea. I, I think there's films, <laughs> yeah, and he but he, and Tom was an avid, avid fan mm. of Star Wars. Anyway, he, he told me a bit about it, and I went and got, got the, the three video cassettes at the time, it wasn't DVDs, it was video cassettes. I had a look at them, and I thought, oh, I suppose, because. Star Wars came out in 77, well I was still living in France yeah. and the furthest thing that I would want to look at around would be some new sci-fi thing from America that had come out. I was more into all the French stuff, I was very Francophile at the time. And uh, I said, well okay, we'll do this and I did some sketches and I did a, a couple of pages of Star Wars characters and machinery, coloured them up. Um, now I think I sent them to Archie Goodwin. Yes, I did. To Archie, um, he must have got in touch with Lucasfilm. They said that was fine. That's good. Great. And then we started it, and I'm trying to remember how it went from. Did Marvel Archie. lose the license? Marvel, Marvel, yeah. That's it. Marvel, um, they let the license slip. Yeah. Because up until then, their Star Wars comics hadn't been selling at all. And I think maybe somebody in account said, I don't think we'll bother renewing the license. Well, as it turned out, Mike Richardson from Dark Horse Comics, um, I suppose he, he saw it on his, it came up on his screen in his office. And he said he would buy that, so they got the license. And I, although I'd started the, and finished the first book with Archie Goodwin, I went on to finish the, the first series, next five books with the Dark Horse. Mm. And by this time, I, when when Lucas saw the first first book I did, the first one I painted, he said that he wanted a second series. Because uh, I suppose he, he's a businessman as well, and he saw that it could sell, you know. So 
that was it. So that that was how Dark Empire came about. Join us next time for part two of the Cam Kennedy interview. As part of Comic Scene's Book Club, we are going to look at one of the featured graphic novels from this month's selection. And the book we're looking at is Roy the Rover's Kickoff by Rob Williams and Ben Wilshire. Uh, I'm also joined again by Tony Foster. Hi, Tony. Hi. Um, what's your first impressions of this new relaunch of Roy the Rover's? I think my first impression was when I got the book and I thought the format was absolutely fantastic. It was it was a really nice feel to it and a really good size as a book. And um, as I went through the pages, uh, I was really impressed at how they presented the, the story. It was nice, clean, crisp, modern artwork. And the story went on a pace as well. It was a really enjoyable book. Um, I loved every minute of it. And, and but I was really keen to to give it to my son who's who's 12 years old and and ask his opinion of it because i suppose it was it was aimed at his 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 age group um as well as appealing to those who read Roy Rovers many years ago uh, and so i was keen for him to get a chance to read it uh, after me of course yeah that's uh, that was similar to, to to my own reaction to it. i was a massive fan of uh, Roy the Rovers in the 70s and 80s in its original format and when they announced the the reboot i was slightly disappointed that it was a reboot uh, to be honest um but i soon came to realize that it's not actually aimed at me you know I, um, it's aimed at the the age group i was at the time when i read Roy the Rovers uh, i really liked the artwork as well and uh, it's it's really sharp it's really contemporary and it's quite kinetic as well as a lot of nice movement in in the in the the, the artwork and it really yeah. depicts the football action really well which is something i thought the original did um but in a much more realistic way yeah absolutely um, and and it was quite interesting seeing that artwork and when the when the original uh, picture started to come out because it it seemed like it would suit an, an animation yeah um, like it was geared towards that as as a next step, um, uh, and it was a little bit cartoony. And, and the original artwork from Roy the Rovers was quite fairly realistic. Yeah, and that was a hard one to sort of put in your head that this is this is the route that this is going down. But actually, when I I saw it as a whole, um, it just made absolute sense for producing Roy of the Rovers today. And I think the, the, the best bit for me was, was and, and it felt like you were building up to it in the, in the book, is when you saw the sort of the double page spread with Racy's rocket in it. Yeah. And, you know, you turn the page to that and you just go, wow, yeah, that's what I was waiting for. And, and there it is. And that looks absolutely fantastic. And, and that would, just, you know, it would, it would bring that, that element of the story that you remember as a kid um, back to, to people today, you know, this, 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 uh, I'm not sure if he's right footed or left footed, but it's certainly a, a hefty kick when he goes <laughs> into the back of the net. And, 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 and it really worked really well. I was just, I, I, I was waiting for it to happen and, and there it was. And, and, and that really pleased me, I think. 
what what I thought was quite nice is that there was there was some callbacks to the original uh, comic and the original series. So some of yeah. the the character names, some of the characters from the other strips pop up in in completely different roles for example mighty mouse uh, was in the original comic as a separate comic strip uh, yeah. he's now the manager there's johnny dexter who is in another strip called the hard man he's the That's the true. coach uh, and there's a lot of the names of the characters are the same but they are actually kind of recast uh, for a, a a much more modern and diverse audience that really yeah. impressed me i thought that was a real smart move yeah i think uh, absolutely and, and it was it was interesting um, going back and reading about um, Mighty Mouse and the, and the Hard Man, and um, and I'd, I'd forgotten that, that that Mighty Mighty Mouse was a, was a was a medic, yeah, um, in his <laughs> rather than a footballer, uh, which I thought was was a great great storyline, um, and I think some of the the stands in the book are either named after artists or writers or all characters as well, yeah. Uh, throughout the book, which was which was quite a nice touch, and I think the what was what was really nice about the book is it captured something that I think made Roy of the Rovers quite appealing, particularly in the sort of eighties. Um, and I think comic books that are quite successful actually have this as well. Spider Man is, is is a prime example of it. It has that kind of soapy storyline to yeah. it. Um, I mean, you can obviously remember the storylines from 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 the eighties, and it was a bit like reading an episode of Neighbours every week in comic book <laughs> form. You know, um, Roy of the Rovers' wife Penny left him; she yeah. took the kids away from him. Yeah, he got um, shot. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of Dallas thrown yeah. in there as well. Who shot? Who shot? Who shot Roy of the Rovers? <laughs> um, you know, he went off and changed teams, and it was the 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 the, the team, and and that. I think the team is even mentioned in this new book, or I don't. I think it was probably Walford Rovers or yeah. something like that at the time. I think it it's was. a new team now. Yeah. yeah. But that that you know that banter uh, that footballers love and and that and fans love between two competing teams and who live quite next to each other, and it really uh, sets the scene for Roy the Rovers. And I remember reading about it and saying, you know, we we couldn't do Roy the Rovers where he was successful all the time again. It had to really go back to basics and back to the beginning of the story with a struggling team. And you can see those soap elements are going to come in there and 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 strengthen that story as it goes on, um, which is which was great to see. Yeah. Um, you know, that things like the, the, the family background of the new Roy of the Rovers, his dad's his big fan and his mom and his sister and um you know what she wants to do with football as well, uh, which kind of it, that takes that element of of Roy of the Rovers when it was coming towards its original end, where they start to introduce Roy's son and, and yeah. daughter, and you've got a mixture of that in there as well for those fans who were reading it at the time. And I thought that was that was quite clever as well. Yeah, it's much more uh, aimed at a, a, a current audience. And actually, I think that I feel like they might be prepping the sister for a kind of spin-off uh, of her own uh, potentially, which which would work really well, I think. Um, the, the only thing that that I wasn't uh, sure of is is the frequency of of the the books. So in uh, in the seventies and eighties, it was a, a weekly comic, so you had. 
uh, kind of uh, you were drip fed, you know, the the, the soap storylines and the, the football stories, and it fitted into the kind of football seasons, uh, which was quite nice. So the only thing I'm not entirely convinced about is a long way in between books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't lose momentum because of that. Well, it's quite brave, and I, I suppose my my concern was was. I had to go and look for it to get it, mm-hmm. the book. I think um, I had to uh, go to a bookshop to find it or I had to go to uh, or send away for it. Um, you couldn't go into WH Smith and pick it up, which is where Roy the Robbers fans would have previously got their, their fix, their weekly fix. I didn't see it in, in, in there. Um, so I'm not sure um, if the casual readers of Roy of the Rovers would have known too much about it other than the stuff that was in the Match of the Day magazine, and uh, which was great. It was fantastic to see leading up to it uh, and in terms of promoting the book. But it would have been nice to have been able to see it in the book, bookshelves of, of, of WH Smith and, and, and some supermarkets as well because... Um, I don't think the frequency of the books would matter as much then. I think having it just accessible and in front of people's faces would have made casual readers want to pick it up and read it. Um, but I think things are changing, and, and it's quite brave of, of Rebellion, I think, to produce something in the UK which is is fresh. I mean, obviously they're doing a lot of reprint material, um, but there's very few um, sort of... In new interpretations of characters and Roy of the Rovers is a fairly brave one I think to do um, and doing that format and and rather than you know running it over uh, two or three issues and then coming out with a graphic novel so we'll just have to wait and see um, I'm sure it's it's proving very popular um, with with what I thought was fairly limited distribution yeah, I think you have highlighted a, a massive change in you know uh, the industry and uh, the distribution of of these types of publications. You know, completely changed from when I was young, and you had news agents and you had standing yeah. orders and you had visibility on the on the shelves. So when I go into W. H. Smiths, you know, it's actually quite hard sometimes to see what you're looking for, even if you know that it's actually there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might it might just be that. Uh, is how the market's changed. I mean, what's fascinating for me is I went into Waterstones, I think it was in Glasgow, and and, and um, my local Livingston has it too, and, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Edinburgh, is that the, that there's there's a big graphic novel section now. Yeah. And that graphic novel section includes comics that I would have been unaware of in book form. So there's quite a lot of books coming out now that are based on the the children's novels like the philip pullman stuff and all that which i'm kind of unaware of yeah um and there's a lot of i mean obviously there's a lot of the the vloggers that exist now like joe sub and stuff have done comic books um and you know these appeal to that age group and to then have royal the rovers there as well um, when when you're going out and buying that that book for your kid for Christmas, well, maybe that's the place where people go, and and that has more of an impact now than than W. H. Smith 
well, yeah. had on a book like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, they actually did release a prose uh, novel before mm-hmm. the graphic novel, and that was uh, freely available again in in, uh, in Waterstones and other bookshops. I actually picked that up as well, and it's a nice prologue to the comic series uh, without it depending on you reading both, which I thought was a really smart move. Yeah, yeah. And Tom Palmer, I think it's Tom Palmer yeah, who wrote the book. Yeah. And I think he writes, he's written a number of, of football books. Yeah. Um, and you can really tell that he has a he, he has an understanding of, of what it is to be a young footballer. My my son is in a in a in a in a team, is in a in a football team. Um and you know, a lot of people playing those kind of football teams, I think in his year group there's maybe about four or five teams. And the storyline of a young Roy and how he ends up um, going to play for Melchester Rovers in the in the graphic novel is not dissimilar to what uh, you know some young footballers are experiencing um, in terms of of that. And that was quite realistic, and I quite like that. It's it certainly emulated some of the the the, the, the feelings that. Uh, people in my my son's team are experiencing whenever they're they've been approached by a you know a, a, a Scottish league club or whatever, and I'm sure it must be the same everywhere. So there's some really nice touches in and because it, it was very much based in in reality that aspect of it, which was which I think appeals to the the people who are really into their football and playing football. They could they could re- relate to that, yeah, just in the same way as perhaps older readers of Roy of the Rovers could in the sort of 80s when you and I were reading it. I mean, I, I was quite young then, I'm sure you were too. <laughs> but Roy had been around for so long that the people who were reading that story were obviously potentially married and had kids themselves. So we're relating to that story in a completely different way at that time. Yeah, it definitely goes across the generations, but the key messages are still there, I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, underneath that. Um, what's really interesting this week is that they actually just released a special free downloadable PDF, which ties into the FA Cup. Uh, yeah. It's called Cup Hero Special, and you mm-hmm. could get it from um, the Royal The Rovers official website. So they're yeah. actually putting out some some really nice free content as well that ties into to, to the, the graphic novel and the, the novel series as well. And Yeah, and... and... That's one way of promoting Roy the Rovers is definitely through foot, uh, football clubs and and um, you know putting it out there in the, um, the the all the football clubs have their own programs as well uh, and they're quite quality publications and to to, put, to have coverage of Roy the Rovers in, in, in any of those would be worth its weight in gold I think um, and what's really interested me is the amount of um, uh, uh, merchandise that's come out on the back of this as well mm-hmm. the, uh, the the football tops the the original football tops and the new one with a sponsor on that and yeah. and I think there was some merchandise like mugs and things like that have just been released and, and I certainly found a calendar of Roy of the Rovers which I'd never seen before um, uh, out this year as well and um, and I think uh, Rebellion have obviously made recently some acquisitions. Uh, I'm sure they always had potentially Roy of the Rovers there, and I think they're, they're, they're hoping to to bring out some of the, the classic Roy of the Rovers uh, strips as well um, to a new audience who who have obviously been interested in, 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 in the new version of Roy. And I, and I think this is the really interesting thing and one of the reasons that we did... A comic scene. I think I touched on it in our in our first 
in the first editorial that there were all these people who were starting to pick up vinyl uh, rather than um, you know CDs or even streaming music. Yeah, and I think it's the same here in that um, you know if you're interested in comics and you're introduced to a comic by a new version of it, then just like when you bought your your first record and you that that pop star then says my inspirations were this person this person and this person you'll go back to the catalog of that person whether it's a prince or an Otis Redding or whatever and you'll go and listen to those records because you're interested in what those influences were and I think it's the same with comics is that you've got this new Lloyd the Rovers and that's how you've been introduced to it but then you go hey wait a minute you know this guy's been around since the 1950s or, or whatever it was and, yeah. and here's here's this is what it was like then and this is what it was like in the 80s and and so I think there's an appeal there that people will will it's not only for the retro market but it's also for those those kids who want to go actually I'd like to know a little bit more about this character and here's something physical that I can actually read that that, that tells me that history that exists there which is great yeah, I think it's great that it does work on those two different levels. So uh, for me, it was a it was a big thumbs up, even though initially uh, I was quite concerned that it wouldn't actually appeal to me at all. But I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and I think it has. It's been named a few times as people's favourite book of the year, even though perhaps they don't even like football. Um, and I think that's testament to to the quality of and, and thought that's gone into the into the publication. And I think that. That gives comfort to many older fans that whatever comes from Rebellion is, in terms of new material, that they're going to give it some thought uh, and treat it with probably the respect that it deserves for the for the quality of the artwork and writers that that, that produced them many years ago. Great, fantastic. Thanks, Tony. Uh, Ride the Rovers kickoff by Rob Williams and Ben Wilshire is available now in all good bookshops and uh, online direct from the publisher. Thanks very much. No problem. Thanks. Join us next time for more guests, reviews, a part two of the Cam Kennedy interview.